Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz, and I'm here with my co-host, Rich Silverman. Hey, everybody. We are in a nuclear-powered submarine in a secret location deep under the Arctic Sea, and we will be broadcasting today with Allison Norrington, you, who you, some of you may know as a conference chair of Story World, but she is a transmedia novelist and expert in her own right. And uh, without further ado, I, let's bring on Allison. I kind of fell into transmedia by accident. I come from a novelist and playwright background. I had three sort of romantic comedy books published and wrote a couple of plays. And then I started a master's in 2006 uh, looking at cross-media entertainment, you know, kind of creative writing and new media. And I decided to try to smash my fourth novel that I was writing across a host of platforms just to make it fun. With the, the first three, I'd always wished that I could perhaps have a, an accompanying CD or, you know, some postcards of images that I was referring to in the stories. And, of course, that just wasn't going to happen. It was like 2004 and stuff, stuff like that. So I was really interested by the idea that I could tell my story as a blog journal and back that up with accompanying content, like enhanced content on YouTube. I had my characters in Second Life. I mean, I was everywhere, really. I was in too many places. Uh, YouTube, Second Life, uh, blogs, forums, oh my God, everywhere I could be. And that was before I really knew the word transmedia. So I sort of fell into it by accident, but found that I did lots wrong and I, lots of things went right that I hadn't anticipated. I found new audiences that I wouldn't have dreamed of finding before. There were a lot of guys that followed the YouTube channel called Pulling Power and they emailed the character after to say they'd really enjoyed the, the videos and hadn't realized it led them to a romantic comedy story. But, you know, those people would never have gone into a bookshop and picked up my pink colored jacket book. So uh, it was a way, I mean, I hadn't intended for it to be. It was like an experiment, really. But I found that it pulled in an audience that I would never have reached prior to that. So then that was all over um, in a year. And I decided I hadn't learned enough and I had to kind of correct the things that I did wrong. So I started a PhD in 2009 looking at, well, it started off as something like pervasive entertainment and emerging platforms for writers and a very long kind of title. And then I realized that transmedia kind of brought it all together. But I imagine by the time I finish the PhD, it'll probably have a different title. So it kind of defines what it is right now. But uh, I think it's going to move on. It's a very fluid title. You know, it's it's just kind of on the t it's, maybe it's like a bookmark for right now. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's something that for people that come into it fresh, it kind of validates what they're looking at and helps them to kind of retain a focus. Um, there's other guys that are working in it and have done for a while. I mean, even the ARG writers, you know, they've been doing this stuff over 10 years and they don't need to call it transmedia anymore because it just does what it says on the tin kind of thing. So um, there's been a lot of debate about the term. I would prefer really to just get on with it and uh, not worry so much about what it's called. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's an approach. It's an approach to a story that works, you know, particularly well for certain types of genres, but maybe so not so much for others. So yeah, we're in a transitionary period, I think. And because I'm something of a cockeyed pessimist, I, I'm interested <laughs> to hear about the things that you think you, you got wrong on that first project. And, and, oh, wow. and hearing these kind of things is great for people, too, because then people can avoid falling into the same pitfalls. 
Yeah. Well, do you know, the things I got wrong were that I was far too bossy with what I expected my audience to do. I wanted them to jump right in and have an impact on the end of the story. I gave them four different options for the end of the story and I was... I don't know, I just felt that I thought that they would just love it so much that it was a no-brainer that they wouldn't want to affect the end of the story. I did find that for romantic comedy and women's fiction, I my experience was that women were kind of saying, you know what, we work all day, we've got partners, we've got kids, we've got jobs, we're, we're relaxing. You know, you think we're going to write the end of your story for you? Like, that's your job, you're the storyteller. So that really fell flat on its face. They didn't want to impact the storyline at all. Um, so, yeah, my tone was too bossy, and I think that I didn't open it up enough for it organically to be that they wanted to end the story. It was too kind of rigid and defined. Something else that I didn't jump on was the opportunity that one of the characters works is a journalist for a magazine, and I really poorly mocked up the cover of the Christmas edition of the magazine that she worked for really badly. And um, a graphic designer who's now a friend contacted me and said, you know, do you want a proper cover for that? And I was like, well, yes, please. So I gave her the taglines to put on the front and she made a fantastic front cover with Marilyn Monroe on the front and it was just amazing. It really looked like a proper publication. And on the back of that, I still now receive emails from people that want to write for that magazine. It looks, it looks so good. It looked like a professional online kind of flip magazine. And I had students and kind of you know, trainee journalists and stuff that actually wanted to write for the mag. I believe if I'd have had the resources and the time and the savvy at the time, I could have launched that as um, an online magazine that would have been written and edited by a team of volunteer writers that wanted to take it to bigger heights. And I just didn't pick up on that. I mean, I saw what was going on, but I hadn't programmed in my schedule for those kind of opportunities to pop up. What were the different type of people you brought into your story world? It was interesting, the different people that came to it. I mean, the, the... the YouTube channel I called Pull in Power, and I'd never ever referenced the name of the story or the blog or anything else that I scattered around. So um, it started off as me asking people for their really cool chat up lines or really bad ones or funny, cool or terrible ways that they'd been dumped or they dumped somebody. And it started off as video footage and then I found that there were some people that weren't so comfortable with owning their horrendous tales. So I opened it up then for people to just simply email in their story and I set it as words on the screen in video form. Um, it attracted a lot of guys to the story. I had a lot of emails from, from guys who were saying, you know, my God, we never realised it was this stuff. You know, we thought this was a really cool kind of geezer type channel where we could tell all the horrendous things we did. Um, and that was interesting. Some of the guys stayed with me as readers and some even subscribed to receive the chapters by emails every day, um, for which I had nearly a thousand people do that. Um, interestingly enough, there was an 84-year-old woman 
that email to say that she would follow in the story and the video and she sent in her own story of how she'd met an American GI during the war years and how they'd fallen in love and it was an amazing story which I then had to condense into like a three minute sort of text on the screen kind of thing um, but she had her whole three minutes to herself I didn't mix that in with any other content because it was just so amazing so you know in terms of where my audience might have been if it was just book I think that it would have been the book would have been in competition with quite a lot of other similar titles at the time and of course you know publish, publishing is such a quick turnover your book remains on the new releases shelf for maybe a month max whereas by fragmenting the story and strategically placing it online I was bringing in uh, men to the audience from my audience that I would never have got and as well older ladies that were interested in different parts of the story so it's quite interesting really yes it's fascinating how certain platforms will track more men while others will track more women definitely and you know even for me like to write my stories I've got very very close friends that have to admit to me they've never read one of my books right because they kind of know the outline they've probably read the first few pages in the blurb but they're just not readers they're just not um, and I know that for the, the story that I'm writing now, there's a book and there's a web series that runs parallel to the book that they cross-reference each other, but you never get the content from one in the other. They kind of complement each other. Equally, they stand alone as, as well as plug in together. And I know those friends of mine that don't enjoy reading would love to follow the web series. I'm hoping that the web series will be intriguing enough that they're just going to have to go and read the damn book to see what else is going on but then again they might not you know and I think that in the way that people learn differently you know some of it very um, visual some are very hands-on in their learning I think that the um, the ways that people like to consume stories it is kind of similar maybe not exactly the same but there's other people that would love the cinema others that would enjoy watching a live performance in theatre and then you know there's another whole experience of sitting down and on the sofa and losing yourself in a book so I kind of like the way that, you know, by telling a story transmedially, you can reach a whole new audience that you might not have got before. What's your opinion on interactivity in transmedia? Is it a requirement or an option? I don't know. That's kind of a debatable thing, right? Because there's a lot of people that say without the interactivity and without the two-way narrative, then it's not transmedia. Um, I think... For me, I think it's an option, to be really honest, because I think that there's an audience out there that would like to perhaps get bite-sized bits of content through their mobile phone or their device and then actually lose themselves a little bit more in perhaps a graphic novel or something that's written out online. Um, but I think to have the interactivity actually enhances the story and gives the fans an opportunity to own elements of the story and amplify parts of that too. So I like the interactivity element. But, you know, I don't know. Some people would disagree with me. I don't think it's an essential component. In, uh, in the project that you were talking about where your audience kind of balked at, at helping you write the ending to the story, did they mm -hmm. interact with the story in other ways? Well, it was strange. I set up two forums, right, that I wanted them to go and populate and talk about the story, right? So, so I wanted to kind of hear what they were saying. So for three weeks, I went into these two forums under different names. I was like a schizophrenic talking to myself in these forums. 
And I was kind of going in as, you know, Kim, for example, and saying, oh, God, he's an idiot. What's she doing with him? And then going in as Amanda and sort of saying, oh, my God, he's so nice. But trying to talk in different voices so it didn't look like it was just me. Um, after three weeks, I was exhausted with that and I had to give up on it. And towards the end of running the project, I found that there were two forums that had been set up by the readers that I didn't know about. And I went in and I had a look and they were talking about the story and they were referencing points and scenarios within the story, but then putting it into context in their own lives. So kind of making an example of something that happened in the story and then telling their experience of it. So talking primarily about their own relationships, but kind of rooted back into things that happened as themes in the story. And I was so excited to find that they were doing what I wanted them to do. And I wanted to go in and say, oh, my God, guys, here's where you are. You know, I thought you'd be over there and you are all here. And then I sort of realized that if they wanted me to know they were there, I think they would have told me they were there and they never told me. So I just had to kind of, you know, be like the person with no friends and walk away and say nothing. <laughs> what are your thoughts on giving your users a toolkit so they can contribute to the story? Yeah, definitely. But I think a key component to that is to kind of take a couple of steps back and sort of try to build your audience prior to really releasing your primary content. And I think if you can do that through interesting, maybe pre-content or something perhaps on a social network or seed a character perhaps in a social network or, I don't know, through a graphic novel or an e-novel, a novella or something, I think that helps to build an audience that are already quite loyal perhaps to the story or a character prior to the point where you actually want them to, to do something. Um, so I think you kind of the toolkit for doing that would be built in if that was handled the right way from the start. If you have a large enough audience, it's easy yeah. to find the hardcore you know, group, people within the yes. group who are willing to like sit back and do the fan fiction and create the art. But to ask a very small group of individuals, you might not get those people, you might lose them. Absolutely. And I think as well, you know, something that Lance Weiler had said at Story World a couple of weeks ago, it's about, you know, taking small steps and making what you ask them to do something that won't dominate a lot of their time. It's accessible. It's easy. It's a very small commitment. You know, make those initial sort of early adopters tasks simple, relevant to the story and something they could do without, you know, needing to sit in front of their mat an hour and a half designing something and then I think as you start to build that loyalty as you go like you say you're going to hang on to the hardcore fans and perhaps then you'll just have people on the periphery that like to just do little bits or maybe just like to watch so I think it's small steps make it achievable and accessible and easy for them to do let's talk a little bit more about audience building you threw out a bunch of content types to sort of precede an audience but how did you go about actually uh, attracting people to these different pieces of content that you put out in the pre-awareness kind of phase? Okay, well, I kind of did it wrong at first. I found um, maybe eight or nine other blogs that were written by women about their relationships. There was about three of them that were actually quite explicit talking about their sex lives and stuff. And um, I kept going over and commenting on their posts in character and then referencing back my blog and kind of really saying, look, you know, you think this is good. Well, this is kind of similar. Come over here and have a look, which obviously that didn't happen. Um, and then I was about a week or two in 
and I had these little cards printed about the story that I had left everywhere. I mean, I left these cards in um, stores that were selling women's clothes. I dropped them into the pockets of jackets, dresses, jeans that was for sale on the hangers. I dropped them into handbags that were for sale and shoes. I had a lot of emails from women that said, oh, I bought a really cool handbag today and I got home and your thing was in it. And it, I kind of got an audience just from doing that. Um, so anyway, I'd given out some of these cards and I met this guy in Starbucks who wanted to sit at our table. Me, my, me and my mum were sitting out. And, you know, my mum kind of said, oh, my daughter's writing this story and here's the cards. I was like, oh, my God. So she gave him some of these cards and he said he'd take them to work. He worked at Canary Wharf in London and he was taking them to work. That night, he emailed Sophie and he said, hi, we met today in Starbucks. So I knew he wasn't talking to Sophie, he was talking to me. And he said, you know, you've written this chapter about this bikini wax and all these really like personal questions directed to me. And I didn't know how to answer because I knew he'd sort of overstepped the mark. He was pretending to talk to Sophie, but yet he mentioned that he'd met me. So I didn't know what to do. So I went over to these other blogs and I kind of said, look, you know, I know I've been a complete pain and I've been pestering you to come and look at my story but what would you do in this situation? This is what's happened. So I put it into context and I told them. And the floodgates opened because they all came over to my blog to read the chapter to actually put a context to what he'd said to me. And that was the trigger for me where the most amount of traffic started hitting the blog because I was genuine in the fact that I asked them a relevant question. And it was a genuine question. And, of course, they all then came over with a host of ideas of what I should do. So in terms of actually trying to redirect some blog traffic and, and steal some blog traffic, I did it wrong at first, but learned the hard way. Um, I also left the cards in a lot of places. Um, I had character, a main character was on Facebook and she was commenting on a lot of other sort of common themed issues on other people's Facebook walls and stuff like that. Twitter was quite new then, so I did put some stuff out on Twitter, but it was very early days for me on Twitter, so I didn't really hit the spot too well. Um, I made an announcement on the blog that my character would be in Second Life every Thursday at a preset time, and I'd give the coordinates for where she would be. So that brought me a lot of new audience because obviously other people at those coordinates at that time would end up talking to the character and she would say she's in a story. And it got to the point that um, people actually were emailing Sophie and saying, this Thursday we're going to meet at these coordinates. So I said, you know, like the 10th person every week to suggest where we meet, that's where we're going to meet. So there was a whole, a whole load of ways, really, that I brought audience in, uh, some that took a lot longer than others, of course. What are your thoughts on using game mechanics to turn casual users into hardcore fans? Yeah, I think that's definitely um, definitely the way that a lot of projects are going to start going as well, to be honest. Um, you know, even speaking to Scott Walker about the shared story worlds and the way that he has bandied out um, what rewards go to certain types of um, contributor, you know, and people can choose how much they want to be involved in the story, whether they want to just be someone that kind of sits back and watches or listens or someone actually adds in, you know, extra value. But I think without making it too too gamey I think it needs to be gamey and that it has to be fun but I think that the people that would like to do stuff like contribute extra content I think they're going to step forward anyway like the person that did the graphic designer that did for the uh, magazine cover that I wanted you know she independently stepped forward and said do you want something better than what you've got which wouldn't have been difficult because what I had was pretty bad um 
but I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely triggers that you can reward. You know, there's the call to action of, you know, referral and primer and reward. I think that's definitely a way. But strategically to know where to place that within your story as well. And that would change with different genres of stories and different types of stories. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a nice way to go without a doubt. And comparing it to like a Yelp elite where there's only like a 1% of the highest contributors get some special like rewards, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's right, which really kind of already echoed in the kind of Kickstarter campaign, isn't it? You know, the people that put the more money in get the whole deal. You know, you go out for dinner with them and your team and they actually become a character within your story. But, I mean, even traditional publishing do that sometimes. You know, they sort of say, oh, there's a, a competition for you to feature in, in so-and-so's next novel. And I think that it's a nice way to um, reward, a, reward an audience that like to participate and join in. Does this transmedia novel uh, that you did still live online? It does. It's unfinished online because um, on the back of that, I had quite a few literary agents contact me. Um, interestingly enough, halfway through, I was going on vacation and I hadn't kind of factored that into the fact I was writing a new blog post every day. So I just made the character go on vacation too for a week. And I said, you know, does anybody want to receive a postcard from me? from my my kind of vacation and I was surprised I think I had something like 90 odd people emailing me with their home addresses which I was really really surprised at I didn't anticipate that people would share their home address with a total stranger which obviously that meant I had to spend a lot of money on uh, postcards and stamps to send these postcards out from the holiday but uh, interestingly there were two television production companies in the UK and a national newspaper from the UK, and also the Philadelphia Inquirer, all emailed Sophie and asked for a postcard. And nothing ever came of that, but it just made me aware that people there were following the story too, which I found quite interesting. I was quite excited at the time, but then nothing ever came of it. But um, So the story remains unfinished online, because I'm currently in talks with an agent who's talking to a publisher about writing the book, which is the adaptation of the blog. So, I mean, I would never write it straight as the blog. The tone and the pace would be wrong for a novel. But um, we're in talks about writing the adaptation, yeah, which will be cool. You uh, mentioned Story World before, and I think it's a good time to talk a little bit about Story World. You were actually the, the chairperson of Story World, and you put that conference to, together to a large degree. Uh, how did that come about? That came about on the back of me giving a couple of talks at Digital Book World in New York. That runs every January. And last year, I gave a talk on transmedia storytelling. And then I was asked to be involved in two or three webcasts that they put out about transmedia storytelling. Then we had a series of conversations about the viability of a conference about transmedia which then one thing led to another. We had a series of conversations and they eventually then asked if I'd like to be conference chair, to which I immediately said yes and then said, what exactly does that mean again? So uh, it was a baptism of fire, really. And then this year I gave a, a session at Digital Book World, like a three-hour sort of mini workshop, and I'm doing the same again next January for Digital Book World in New York. So it kind of came from that, really, that um, F&W Media could see that there was a lot of publishing interest and ad agency and television interest in transmedia. 
so that was it. They they asked if I'd be Story World Conference Chair, and I said yes, I would. I mean, I immediately had a vision for how I wanted it to be, which kind of helped really, and it just rolled on from there really. For you, uh, what were the the highlights of the conference? Oh my God, there was loads. The highlights were bringing together. When I started the PhD, I made a point of interviewing a series of entertainment people across various industries. So I looked at publishing, gaming, television, movies, I don't know, mobile, theatre, and I interviewed a host of people in New York and London and Sydney to see where they currently were at that point in terms of looking towards transmedia. And for me, Story World was an opportunity to do that, to bring together key people from advertising and brands and TV and film and publishing and all of that together in the one place to share their experiences, to share their vision um, and to kind of give a, a hint at to what, what might be coming over the next year. So, I mean, that... In a nutshell, that was the highlight, just the opportunity to bring everyone together and at various stages of sort of expertise, if you like, across the transmedia realm, from complete beginners to, to ARG writers that have been doing it, like I said, for over 10 years. What were the biggest differences between the individuals coming from everything from advertising to theater? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think the biggest differences were in terms of scalability and scope. Um, the last session that was called The Way Forward was with Disney AMC and NBC. And they had very, I mean, ABC, Disney had very big visions as to how they'd like things to go. Um, which I think to perhaps a lot of more independent writers and creators is just never going to be something they could viably do. And then you've got some of the people that put their work in the in-production showcase that were really quite simple to roll out. There was a lot of strategy and consideration to their audience and to how they were going to do things, but they were completely scalable and completely doable and something that had equally as engaging stories to them as, as the big guys. And I think that was the biggest difference, really, just, just uh, obviously budget as well, you know, in terms of the scale and scope of the types of projects and both of which work fine depending on who your audience are and and what why you're telling the story in the first place did um did, did you get like two or three key sort of takeaways from the conference was there a uh, common themes that were brought up uh, common points that people were trying to, to get across that seemed to resonate with the audience uh i felt definitely that the fact that story is the key you know, story is the hub from which everything begins and ends in terms of transmedia. I think that was something that came across quite strongly. Um, and perhaps that was something that wasn't tapped into enough, maybe. You know, there's been some people that have said afterwards that there was a lot of talk of story, but we would like for next year for them to be some more sessions on how to do that, you know, how to tell the story and how to know that you've got a story that's good enough perhaps to, to kind of fragment over a series of platforms. So that was one of the key points. Um, there was also a lot of talk about measurability, which I've got to say isn't my great spot, which is why I got some really cool guys in to talk about that, um, and how to measure the success of a project, which we kind of felt is defined by what you deem as being successful in the first place you know if you if your successful project means that you've had 2000 hits then you know 
that's easy to achieve perhaps if the success of your project depends on a certain amount of budget revenue or turnover then you know it is different and it's scalable depending on what your project is but i think the main key points were that the community was pleased to be brought together like that in real life there's a lot of people that know each other virtually through twitter and facebook and google plus but the, the bringing together of community the fact that story is at the hub and um and, you know, just to look at the more technical elements like the measurability of projects. I mean, somebody said, you know, something like behind every story is another more interesting story, which I think kind of <laughs> was maybe the tagline for Story World because as these people got together and started talking, there was a lot more that was uncovered in the networking spaces than we perhaps could even have shown on the sessions that were already curated. A YouTube video may have a million views, but a shallow relationship with its audience. On the other hand, a transmedia experience may only have 2,000 users, but they're evangelists for the story world. Absolutely, I completely agree. I mean, there's some kind of stat somewhere that says how many weeks worth of footage is uploaded to YouTube every second, you know, something like that. And I mean, generally, the majority of it is just junk, really. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, the, the clicks and the hits on, on YouTube you know, is like you say, quite a shallow measurement of an engaged and loyal audience. And that's why I think, you know, before you start your project, you need to be clear as to what you want from it. You know, how you would measure that you've got that engaged and loyal audience that actually are going to carry your story through, maybe even would contribute to your story. I mean, like for me, I wanted them to change the ending of staying single and they just didn't want to do it. That was a huge faux pas on my part. But, um, I think if perhaps I'd handled it differently and I'd invested more time in pre-production before I kicked it off, I could have built, you know, a loyal, I wouldn't say an army of fans, but even five or ten perhaps that were engaged enough with the character, there was enough at stake for the character, for them at that point then to say there's no way she should be doing this. I felt that I hadn't let them get to know her well enough to care enough to want to change the ending and that was a huge mistake that I'd made. Jay Bushman who's a writer at Fourth Wall Studios uh, made a joke uh, on a panel that he said at that sort of echoes what you were talking about before and he said he for his projects he sets the bar low very low mm. <laughs> and, and and he was he was joking but but there, there's a there's a core of, of truth in there and that that um, as storytellers we kind of want millions of people flooding to our projects instantly yeah, and and that might set up uh, sort of false expectations. So perhaps it is better to be more reasonable for our own sakes, but also for the 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 sake of managing expectations of clients who might hire us to produce and create transmedia experiences. Yeah, I think it's always wise to kind of have do the blue sky thinking and have your you know own personal aims and ambitions for the story and where it's going to go and also for how long you can extend the story world for but i think it's definitely a smart move to do what jay said and just you know you know keep the bar low because i think maybe that's what i did wrong with staying single because i was expecting too much of them too soon if i had organically garnered that audience and nurtured them to a point where they wanted to impact the end of the story, I could have put it into my strategy that that's really what I wanted, but I needn't have been so obvious about it right from the start. 
And I think I almost took their element of choice away from them because I made it clear that's what I wanted them to do. And, you know, I just think that um, we generally sometimes forget that you would behave the same online as you do offline. I often say that you would never walk into a room of people and demand that they all leave the room and go to that room over there because there's something you want to show them. I think that, you know, the general kind of human knee-jerk reaction is there's no way I'm doing that. But yet if you walked into that room of people and kept sort of looking out the door at this other room and kind of, you know, scratching your head and gesturing that there was something really kind of sinister or interesting happening in that room, then you're going to start getting people getting off of their seats and looking over to see what's going on. And I think that you need to behave the same way online and within your story world and your transmedia strategy as you would offline. You would never be so bossy as to tell people where to go and what they're going to do. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Can transmedia experiences be used to show there's an audience for a story, kind of like a market research, so you could reverse engineer your pitch to film companies, TV networks, and publishers? And I think that there's a huge amount of, I mean, you know, again, Lance speaks about using story as R&D. I think it's a really nice way to show that your your commitment to your story and to show your commitment to telling it and building an audience prior to then taking it to a network or a publisher or, or whoever you might, you know, choose to partner up with. So um, there's huge value there, definitely. And does that go into mind on future projects, thinking, well, th- you know, I'm, I want this to make to be the best, you know, transmedia experience possible, but mm. this could also make a very compelling TV show or film? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the way I think of it is we're being kind of sold to 24-7. We've got banner ads on our Google thing and we've got, you know, bus board staff on the side of buses and we've got adverts in magazines and on the television. And we're so kind of blind now to all of these adverts that are trying to sell us things and I think if you can put content out there in bite-sized chunks that shows that you're giving a you know good robust story that's been well considered and you have the commitment to telling that in whichever ways you choose to tell it that shows a pace of commitment to building an audience as well you then might end up with something that's far bigger than you expected it to be but in terms of then like you say reverse engineering that you've got something of huge value and and quality to pitch to a broadcaster or a publisher or whoever you're looking at you know wherever you're looking at taking it to One of the uh, the things that you mentioned about story world that, that maybe you wish that you'd done a little bit more so was sort of the practicality of creating a uh, a transmedia narrative. Yeah. What 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 uh, along those lines? What are some of the unique skills do you think that are required of a transmedia storyteller? I think a transmedia storyteller needs to understand the triggers within the narrative where you can open up the opportunities for um, user-generated content and to understand what areas might be interesting to work as a space where you give a more immersive experience. Um, I think also a transmedia storyteller needs to understand to an extent how media partners would work with your story. You know, I mean, for me, I've got predefined 
types of media partners I want for my loving in why story that I'm writing and I'm already partnered with Skype who are going to facilitate part of the storytelling with me but I think that you need to be able to kind of step outside of the role of being just the writer to actually looking at being partly the producer as well. And I know I speak to a lot of writers that don't want to do that. They want to stay writing for the, the stage or they want to remain writing for book because it's a domain they know. Um, I think perhaps the fact that I've written for the book and the stage and I've written journalism as well has kind of helped me to understand the different ways in which to write parts of the story to make them work on different platforms. But um, I think you need to be a bit of a, a multi-skilled kind of all-rounder, really, in terms of writing transmedia stories. And, you know, recognising as well what's going to work commercially. There's a lot of academic um, projects that I looked at when I was doing my master's, all of which were beautifully designed and told, but they were just a little bit out there. You know, they would never hit commercially because they were just a little bit kind of, I suppose, too clever. And it needs to be something that works. For the, for the people that are sitting at home on a Saturday night watching the television, they need to know how to kind of navigate their way through the story. Has doing this made you a better writer? It's made me a more careful writer and it's made me, yeah, it's made me kind of more aware of what I'm writing and why. It's made me more aware of pace. It's made me more aware of the fact that I need to know my characters and my world so much more. Because I think once you start telling a story over different platforms, unless you really know the heart and the motivation of your characters and the reasons why they do what they do, it starts to dilute across platforms if you don't know that and remember that while you're writing it. So um, for me, it took me a year to actually get to the, the bottom line of what the heartbeat of Loving NY is all about. And I got to the point a few months ago that I realized it's about temptation versus conscience. And once I actually managed to nail that, I realized that it echoed the Calypso story quite strongly. And I also realized that that toss-up between temptation and conscience in different ways affected all of my characters, which has really helped inform the way now that I tell the story and what motivates each of them to do what they do. And equally as well, that echoes in some of the ways the experience rolls out over a couple of the different platforms. So that was a real like light bulb moment. Everything literally just fell into place once I managed to realise that. Hmm. I wouldn't it? have needed, I, I wouldn't have needed to do that when I was writing it as books. I really didn't need to do that. I could get away with writing the books without knowing all of that so well. Um, and like two of the three books I wrote were bestsellers, and yet I actually didn't know my characters or motivations as well as I do for Loving in Why which is kind of weird, really, but it's nice, you know. It's a nice kind of position to be in as a writer, that you know them so well. What's the strongest fan community that, that revolves around a transmedia experience that began on the web? Yeah, right, okay, that's a really good question. Um, for stuff that's originated just on the web, I, I don't know. I mean, I know the Harry Potter Alliance is a very strong community of a very engaged people that are working towards a host of different projects. Um, but I suppose 
you know, it's not stuff that's propagated so much on the web, but what Christopher Sandberg did with the truth about Marika, you know, he had communities of people dressing up in costume and, you know, lighting bonfires and dancing at midnight and stuff like that. And, I mean, I don't know so much that that, that would have worked, say, for example, in Manhattan, right? Because you've got a whole different community of people and what they might do and what they might not do I think would be different but Christopher Sandberg knew his audience so well from building them online like he had that he kind of knew that they'd get together and well perhaps he didn't know but they did they got together and they they joined as a community in costume now that's powerful stuff for me I wouldn't possibly do that. That's too much of a commitment for me and too much demands on my time. But he managed to pull that off with the truth about Marika. But um, on a much more kind of dumbed down level, and I think maybe some would argue that it's not so much transmedia, but something like the X Factor. You know, you've got people that are looking at that online. You've got people that are watching it on the television, people that are sitting at their desks on a Monday morning and talking about it. They're reading about it in the newspapers. And nobody's actually standing up and saying, oh, I had this fantastic transmedia experience. But yet, quite organically and without questioning it, they expect to read about the characters in the newspaper. And they expect that they can log on to facebook and find out more about the characters and then watch them perform on a saturday night and for me it's that's kind of not that i want to write the x factor but it's something like that that's gonna pull in like i said the people that are sitting at home watching the television with their families and without even questioning it they know they can go on their phone they can watch the telly they can pick up a newspaper and they're going to be able to find what they want of that television show so in terms of bringing people together I think a show like that hugely ticks the boxes. I don't particularly like it, I have to say, but, you know, they've managed to bring in a host of people that are interested in it for different reasons. Well, I, uh, for one, won't make any more demands on your time. I know it's about 7.30 in London, and it's time to go get a pint, I'm sure, for you. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. (laughs) No, you working tonight? Uh, probably a little bit, yes. I've, I'm going off to um, Galway tomorrow in Ireland to speak to some TV broadcasters from TG4. And uh, I'm giving a transmedia workshop to them for a couple of days about a series they're running in the summer. So I think I need to do just a little bit extra prep for that tonight. But yeah, I won't be doing loads. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's good meeting you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. It's been it's been great. You know, a really interesting guest, and uh, you can uh, check me out at PeterKatz.net. P T E R K A T Z dot net. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, should you wish to find me, you could find me easily enough at TadaRichSilverman.com. <laughs>